Hello and welcome to the Enjoy Church podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope this message empowers, equips, and helps you become everything God has called you to be. Enjoy the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read a number of verses. Please uh, stay focused. Most of us have um, short attention spans, but I'm going to read a number of verses. I'll do my best to try to um, make it stand out, but if you can please watch or read along 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The title in my Bible talks about this chapter as new bodies. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on our heavenly bodies, we will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. Maybe that's when you're running up the hill doing your exercise. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared, sorry, God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he has given us the Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not seeing. Yes, we are fully confident. And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, but then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. I mean, if that's a motto statement for our Christian walk, it could be as simple as that. I mean, Jesus gave us the two great commandments, love God with everything you got. That's my paraphrase. And he also said, hey, love your neighbour with everything you got, just as you love yourself. Well, again, we could paraphrase the whole Christian walk and say, our goal is to please him. So if you're a single guy in this room today and you're hanging around some single women, trying to get your stakes up in their eyes, which all of us do. We always present our best version of ourselves, not our real self. Well, if you want to please those girls, if you want to please the people around you, you better actually start listening to what they're talking about. You actually typically, when I remember when I was dating Darlene, we were together and dating and I would always intently listen on what music she liked, what food she liked, when was her birthday, all of these different things. So I absorbed that information in so I could respond and be proactive in all of these different areas. So if you are, have a desire, which I believe by the sheer fact that you're sitting in this building today or watching online, that you've got a desire to please God, pick up the cues that he's giving you. Go left, don't go right. Stay steady, don't don't surrender to the fear. 
actually stay constant in plug yourself, go deeper into this church. This is not just a good church. This is a great church. So I was reading this passage and thinking about my new body and thinking, what would I like it to be? And I started giving God some cues about what it should be like. And it should be at least five kilos lighter. (laughs) There should be more muscles here and here and all sorts of things. But as I read this scripture, I started to think about, well, if, if the Apostle Paul writing this is encouraging us that there's good courage, I wonder if there's such a thing called bad courage. And I started to think deeply about that and As I started to reflect and really meditate on this scripture, the Holy Spirit took me to um, a couple of different accounts in the Old Testament. Now, it's always good to have the Bible explain the Bible. But so then I started to think about this good courage. I started to think about bad courage. And then, of course, I started to reflect, and maybe some of you ever heard of an expression called Dutch courage. Has anyone ever heard that expression before? Um, yeah, the, the little brave ones who are just sticking their hand up like this because it's not a nice thing, really. And we'll explain that a little bit later in the, in the Bible, in the message, I should say. We're going to read the Bible, but we're in the message. So I want to turn to an account in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I think we've got this scripture on the screen as well. And it's, just, it's the account in the Old Testament about when David, the shepherd boy, takes on the giant, Goliath. And he's actually starting to speak to the giant, which is an interesting thought in itself, that he would have the chutzpah to actually speak to a giant. I don't know about you, but you know, whenever I have a giant in my world, whether that be finances or health or uh, my, my emotions or my relationships and a giant turns up, the first thing that we normally do is retreat. We shrink. We actually move out of the way of the giant and say, please go through. But see, David, in this case, he wasn't letting the giant go through. And so he speaks to the giant. In First Samuel 17, verse 45, he says, Um, to the Philistine, the giant, you have come to me with sword, spear and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, listen, whom you have defiled. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. Those are no conciliatory Mediation words, are they? (laughs) Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the white animals and the whole world, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled there will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. The motivation for David to speak to the giant with such um, strength was the giant said bad things about his God. 
our God. I mean, imagine if everybody responded in the same way David did. What a different world we would live in if people were willing to take on the fight when they actually denigrated our God. I mean, again, but then David clearly puts us in the position where we understand that David is not the hero in the story, but God is the hero. He said, the Lord will conquer you. The whole world will know about God. He wasn't saying, at the end of this fight, David, I will be wearing the heavy welt champion plate and everyone in the world will know that I am number one. He didn't say that. He said, everyone will know about God. I'm in God's fight. Everyone will know how, who took the battle and who won this fight. He says, by the way, this is the Lord's battle. Your battle is not your battle. I mean, for some people here, that's a word right there. Your battle is not your battle. It's God's battle. You've just got to somehow surrender to the process that God is putting you through. Now, David, if you read a few verses earlier, he explains how he can actually have this much strength to speak to the giant that way. In verse 35, so if you go back a little, little bit earlier in the chapter, he said, when a lion or a bear, because he's talking about his shepherd days, comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I love this phrase, I go after it. He could have went, well, one little lamb, that's okay. We'll take a few losses on the edges. We'll take a, what's the accounting term for some of the little bits of money that get, seem to lose? Any accountants in the room? You can talk back. It's quite okay. What, what, what do you call it? Yeah, you want to write off a bad debt. What do you call that? Anyway, a little, little bit of leftovers on the side. I can't remember. There's a particular technical phrase. So David could have went, well, we lost one lamb, but I've still got 99. But he said, actually, I go after it. I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by its jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine. David went after the giant. If the enemy is stealing things from you, if he's taking your future away from you, if he's pulling you down and shrinking you, go after it. Don't accept it. In this moment and season that we're living in, I mean, it's so frustrating, um, you know, in some ways, because you listen to the newspapers or you read Koshi every morning and, and you think that we're falling off a financial cliff. That's not the case. That is not the case. So if you are in financial pressure, go after it. Don't retreat in your tithes and offerings. Don't actually fall back to what the enemy would like you to do. In some cases, if you've got the chutzpah, could you go after it? Could you actually say, well, I'm going against you, enemy. I'm going to actually start giving over and above my tithes. 
I'm going to do exactly the opposite to what you want me to do. David here is showing good courage. He's simply playing a part in God's fight. It's not his fight, it's God's fight. He says, I'm going to own my part. I'm going to do my part. God, I'm going to let you use me. I mean, just think about it. The shepherd boy who actually uh, rejected all of Saul's armour and all of his help and advice, he embraced fear of taking on the giant. I mean, David was not immune to fear. It would have been a part of what he had to think about. He also embraces the irrational logic that a shepherd boy with no protection, no defence strategy was going to face off against a giant. There was no plan B for David. He just went after it. I mean, in this story, there's also the account of bad courage, which I promised you at the start that I'd point out to you. And there's... See, bad courage in my definition is when people only think about their self-interest in the middle of the battle. I'll take on this battle, I'll be in this fight only if it suits me and helps me, then I'll do it. Leaders, business people, family leaders, Please don't motivate people by what they get out of it. That's bad courage. Get the motivation right that they want to serve God. They want to lay down their lives for the kingdom's sake. They want to be part of a legacy story. See, Saul tried to do it. He he said to his soldiers, no taxes. Oh, I'll be up for that. He says, "Whoever, whoever takes down the giant can actually marry my daughter. See, these were all self-interest carrots. But David's motivation was to actually take down the guy that was saying terrible things about his God. See, when you sow bad courage, you get bad courage in return. Saul had a whole army there that actually technically were in the battle. They were in the trenches. They would get up every morning. You could read the account for yourself. They would um, gear up, put all of their armour on. They would line up in formation. They would go through the routines as if they're in battle. They would stand and go to the battleground and then the giant would come and, and defile their God and then they would retreat and humble back to their cups of tea and cupcakes. See, they were in the battle, but they weren't in the battle. No one was willing to actually put their body on the line for this fight. No one was willing to actually, the thing that David did, he not only put his body, but he put his future on the line. And we know what the future beheld. We've got King David and the story goes on. A lot of the Old Testament is written around his story and his legacy. He was willing to put his legacy on the line for the sake of the kingdom. See, battles turn boys into kings. Battles 
turn girls into queens. No battles. And if you keep avoiding the giants in your life, which, which I'm talking about, then there's no battle. Well, then you're just sitting around having a cup of tea and a cupcake. Which, by the way, David's brothers were sitting around eating bread and cheese. They were also living tax-free after this event because their brother, the shepherd, showed good courage and took on the giant. David went after it. Now, there's another courage phrase that's out there. It's called Dutch courage. Dutch courage comes from a story about in World War I where in the trenches in Europe... Um, the British soldiers were facing off against the Dutch soldiers. Big battle, they were going up and down, out of the trench, lots of people dying. So, of course, at some point, everyone starts to get a bit paralysed with fear, saying, I'm not going up because I've seen all of these other people get shot. So what the Dutch did is they um, supplied a lot of alcohol liquor to all of the Dutch soldiers got them rotten drunk and then said, okay, over the trench we go. They jump up out of the trench and they're screaming and yelling. They've lost all of their inhibitions and they scared the British soldiers who ran away. They thought there was some other superpower that they had. But see, Dutch courage is simply the confidence that people get from drinking alcohol to do something that requires or needs courage. They need outside help to get them started. Something to numb the fear or the pain for the battle ahead. See, alcohol, in that sense, uh, it it, um, removes people's inhibitions. You've seen it. You've walked down the pubs or whatever it is and you've seen people who have had too many, and they're just louder, they're more confident, all of the normal human inhibitions leave them. And so all of them become, they become their extroverted self. In many cases for people, it really helps them remove fear out of their lives. So then in social settings, they can actually pretend to be normal. Do you need an outside force to help you face battles? Where God's actually trying to strengthen you from the inside out. Not from the outside in. See, I'm not necessarily talking about alcohol here. Your stimulus might be things like your job title. This might be your Dutch courage that allows you to somehow go after some things because you're counting on something. Or maybe it's the conditions or the relationships that you've built in your life so that they are quite comfortable and that helps you avoid fear and giants in your life. Maybe it's food that gives you some comfort and helps you overcome fear. Or maybe you build a community of Friends around you that only ever agree with you, which means you don't ever have to face any battles, any of the bad thinking that you carry, that I carry, 
See, it's a healthy thing in your social network to have friends that don't necessarily agree with you. It will make you a better person. See, Dutch courage comes in all sorts of different ways. And, may, you know, maybe um, you have a, a whole range of support people in your life where when you're feeling down or, or overwhelmed with fear, as we all do, or maybe the giant just seems extra tall this week, that you go to someone for encouragement and, but, and then all of a sudden you throw them a line which they then have to encourage you and pump up your tyres and say, yes, you're a good guy, Mark. We love you. You're awesome. You're wonderful. All of these things. And you end up becoming codependent with this level of encouragement. Where God's trying to do something on the inside, you're looking for stimulus from the outside. That's Dutch courage. See, another... Biblical example of courage is a few chapters later. The next book, 2 Samuel chapter 23. And here we are again. Now David is now the king. He's, he's actually been, um, he, he's outside of the, the kingdom in a sense and being harassed. And he's got all of his soldiers and his army with him. And there's a particular event that ties King David now in 2 Samuel chapter 23 to three famous soldiers where they defied death, put their bodies on the line to bring King David a glass of water. See, David grew up in a little town called Bethlehem. He was familiar with the town. Um, He was familiar with the, the well in that town. His parents had got their water from that well. He had drunk water from that well. His ancestors had drunk water from that well. And he desired a drink from that well. He was just walking along, the Bible says, and and he spoke to the air and said, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful, thinking backwards, wouldn't it be great to have a glass of water from that well? David's wish which he didn't speak to anyone directly, ended up becoming a command for these three soldiers. Unknown to him, they went behind enemy lines, risked their lives, their families, their future, their legacy, to bring their king a glass of water. They returned with the glass of water. David's horrified, overwhelmed by their love and their courage. He also says, the Bible says, that he made it abundantly clear to them that God was really the king of Israel. See, do you hear the reflection back to the shepherd boy? This is God's fight. He's the one who's going to be glorified. He's the one who's going to get the honour. We are in God's fight, not our fight. Yet these three men showed a very unusual, different form of service. No commands were given that required obedience. There was no call up, no vision statement, no special um, roundup of, of elite troops to say we've got a special mission to do this extraordinary service. None of that. These three guys just wanted to please the king. 
an act of devotion, uh, an act of love that no command could have actually um, generated. I wonder, could this be the next move of God? Where? Imagine in the West here in Melbourne, an army of men and women rearranging their lives so that everything points to pleasing God. Ordinary people, everyday people, not motivated by what they get out of it, not following celebrity Christian leader to get their dose of Dutch courage, blue-collar folks taking willing to take on noble goals and noble roles, willing to lay down their lives to build legacy for future generations. People who are quite comfortable with avoiding attention. They don't need their tires pumped up. People focusing on building the kingdom, God's kingdom. People willing to take kingdom ground so that God's name would be glorified. Why? Just as the shepherd boy said, so that the whole world would know. I want to tell you, just in a couple minutes, a story about a gentleman like that. In 1906, 1906, in Los Angeles, there was a guy called William Seymour. William Seymour is the face and now the de facto leader of the Azusa Street Revival. A revival that this church and our church are the beneficiaries of. Without that revival, we wouldn't be worshipping the way that we're worshipping today. One of William's leaders, co-leaders I should say, said this about him. He was very plain, spiritual, and a humble brother. A pastor from Chicago that was coming to this revival. Remember, this revival was a building that seated, you know, only a few hundred people in, in, a, in a street called Azusa, which the fire brigade had to turn up a few times because lots of people called the fire brigade to say that building's on fire because they saw flames coming out of it. The building wasn't on fire, but the Holy Spirit was at work. Where the train station to Azusa Street was packed every day with hundreds of people coming out of the train and there's accounts of people walking from the train station to go to the revival meeting where they were slain in the spirit on the sidewalk. They never even made it to the building. And a pastor who was visiting from Chicago said this about William Seymour. He seems to maintain a helpless dependence on God. What a beautiful description of a man of God. See, God used him to bring a major awakening in the early 20th century through America and eventually all around the world. But see, what people don't know about William 
is that when he would come into the meeting to run these revival meetings, he would come and sit behind the pulpit on the ground and he would actually grab a box and put it over his head and just sit there for hours while the meeting went on. And the people would say that the reason why he did that was because he wanted to make sure that the people did not see himself as the source of the revival. That they understood that this was something that God was doing amongst them. King David refuses to drink the drink. He says, only the Lord is worthy of such acts of service. So he pours out that cup of water where three people's legacies was on their line for that one glass of water and pours it on the ground. I mean, I thought when I read that and studied that, I thought, what a waste. At least give each one of those three soldiers a sip. They put their lives on the line for it. I mean, maybe go back and ask the team who has who was stayed behind, so does anyone need a drink of water? Because this is first-class water. But he pours it on the ground. I mean, it looks like and seems like a waste. See, when you pour water on the ground, it just gets absorbed. Not, not a drop can be taken back. It's not, it, doesn't, it can't be used again as we understand. But physically, we also know now that that water returns into God's wonderful environmental system. See, water never ends. It just chooses its location to do a different job at a different time. So that act of service for that glass of water, then over the decades to come, was still going to actually quench someone else's thirst in, in a time in the future. It seemed like a waste, but actually it has a legacy work going on that we probably can't even understand fully. Spiritually, this water represents the sacrificial action by these three guys in God's kingdom. That was, by the way, undertaken to please King David. It becomes a legacy trophy. Whether it's here on planet Earth, where this act is recorded, but there's many sacrificial acts that go on every week, as I've already pointed out on the platform and in the kids' team and many other areas in in church life, the car park and so forth and so forth. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if Pastor Dan can come, that would be great. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. And the writer of Philippians 2 says, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, You should rejoice. I will share your joy. See, there's a joy associated with sacrifice. It's it's an upside down world, the kingdom. See, the world would say, when you sacrifice, it's all pain. But in God's economy, when you sacrifice, there's joy. You might be sitting there going, well, how do I get more of that good courage in me. 
I want some more of that good courage that both the shepherd boy showed and those soldiers showed. Well, clearly when you study the Scriptures, the courage comes from previous battles where God needed to show up. You can read the CVs of those three soldiers and one of them um, uh, killed 800 men on his own. Uh, The account says that King David and one of those soldiers took on a whole conflict all on their own and won that battle. And one of those soldiers defended the territory of that king all on his own, advancing so that the enemy couldn't take over the fields. So you can strengthen your spiritual courage by placing yourselves in situations, listen to this, where if God does not show up, he will be seriously embarrassed. What have you got to lose if God's on your side? Why don't you just have a a thinking where you go, I'm going to go after it. I've been thinking about starting a business, but this probably doesn't seem like the right economic time. Can I suggest to you that you go after it? Maybe it's an education where you're saying, you know, I really want to get that degree. Or, and, or can I just say, go after it? Maybe it's a master's, go after it. Even if it's a PhD, now's the time to go after it. What is it that you've been sitting on where my encouragement is to you to say, please go after it today. And we'll finish where we started. And then I want to pray for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul goes on and says, Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised from them. Live for Christ. Not a person, not even yourself. Choose surrender, choose sacrifice, and in some situations, embrace suffering. Remember, this is not our home. And our goal is to please Him. Let me pray for you. If you just close your eyes where you're sitting this morning. If what I've been speaking to you resonates, speaks to you, challenges you, let's just raise your hand in the air. Holy Spirit, you see these people, you know their lives, you know their story, you know their journey. You know even what's in front of them. Lord, I speak good courage into these lives. Holy Spirit, embolden them, lift them, encourage them. Surround them in their situations, Lord, where they can become warriors in your kingdom. I pray this in your strong and your powerful name. And everyone said, Amen.